Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today I'm joined by Dr. Tom Schmidt, who has authored a brand new book with Cambridge University Press titled The Book of Revelation and its Eastern Commentators. Tom, congratulations on the book, and thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here, Zach. Well, it's great to be speaking with you about the book. And, um, you know, I mentioned earlier how when you read the book, it really comes through clearly the amount of research you've done, your command of the literature uh, with all of these ancient sources. And then also you've included this really helpful appendix, uh, which we can talk about later. Um, but anyway, but I, I'm glad our listeners will get the chance to hear about your book. Um, but before we get to that, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your academic background, where you're working? Sure. Yeah. I, I was uh, in college. I was a classics major. I, I studied Latin and Greek. And then um, I taught in the public schools for several years before coming to Yale University, where I did my PhD in ancient Christianity. And I studied the formation of the New Testament, as well as Eastern Christianity and uh, Christianity in the early church. Um and right now, I am a professor at Fairfield University. I teach New Testament and early Christianity there. And I'm interested uh, in my research. Um, I'm interested in uh, a variety of things. Sometimes I, I have too many projects cooking at one time, but I'm very interested in the formation of the New Testament. Um, I'm also interested in early Christian eschatology and um, as well as Eastern Christianity. And so in this book, I kind of combine uh, all three of those where I, I look at how the New Testament was formed, but I also uh, pay special attention to the book of Revelation and its reception into the New Testament. And I also look at uh, how all this went down in the Eastern Christian churches. And by, and by Eastern churches, I'm referring to um, the churches uh, of Egypt, you know, that spoke Coptic, the Arabic-speaking churches, Syriac, Armenian churches, places in Persia, the Caucasus, and and the Middle East. Well, well, Tom, that's that's helpful to kind of get a gauge from where you're coming from and approaching this book, and 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 it is the the fruit of that PhD research uh, that you did here at, at Yale University, um, and you know, you're doing a lot of work with with these ancient contracts and wills, and sort of keeping in mind some of the broad ranges of meaning in authoritative documents like these in the ancient world um, and using it sort of as a, as a lens for understanding um, these, these practices, you know, processes that, that were involved in making the New Testament. You know, there's, there's a lot of preliminaries that you address at the start of the book. Um, maybe we could take some time and have you just sort of map out some of the terminology, uh, some of the, these, these foundational ideas that you lay out in the introduction um, that, that help you uh, examine the formation of, of the New Testament. Yeah, I, I think maybe the best way to start would be to talk about how past scholars have, have investigated the formation of the New Testament um, and then go from there. So traditionally, scholars, when they look at how 
the New Testament was formed, um, they'll talk about uh, the formation of the New Testament canon. And they'll focus on that word canon, um, which is from the Greek word kanon. And um, they'll kind of scour early church documents, medieval church documents, and traditionally scholars have come up with a bunch of criteria. They call them the canonical criteria that um, scholars believe uh, a, a, an ancient text needed to meet in order to be considered part of the New Testament. And these criteria are things like um, it needed to be written by an apostle. It, it needed to be orthodox. This document couldn't be preaching heresy or anything like that. And um, scholars kind of conclude that that if uh, when the when the early church was was putting together the New Testament, if they came across a document that met all of these four or five canonical criteria, then it could be considered a valid part of the New Testament. And um, all of that uh, is true. Th those, those issues like uh, apostolicity being written by an apostle, um, having correct doctrine, and a couple others that I have not mentioned, those were all very important in the early church. But um, as I was doing my research, I felt like uh, that idea of, of canonical criteria was, was insufficient, uh, was incomplete. And one reason uh, is because... Um, if we want to get imaginative, uh, we could all imagine a potential or hypothetical document that fulfills these criteria. So a document that was really written by an apostle, that, that was orthodox, that didn't have any heretical notions in it, that, that was received by all Christians, that had been received by past Christians. And we can imagine a document that fulfills those criteria, but that also uh, could still be full of contradiction or even immorality or silliness or grotesqueness. Um, and it turns out that uh, that is, is the, the very kind of criticisms that Revelation received in some churches, uh, where, where churches thought that, you know, yes, maybe it was written by an apostle, um, yes, it was orthodox, but it had all these other issues of contradiction or immorality that caused people to not want to put it in the New Testament. And so um, we could come up with other documents too, you know, for instance, like, uh, we would not, uh, most Christians probably would not want to put in the Apostle Paul's tax receipts into the New Testament, um, even if those were signed by him and they were Orthodox. I mean, all that stuff, it just is not something you'd really want in the New Testament. So I felt like we needed a new paradigm or, or a new method for looking at the formation of the New Testament. And um, I kind of targeted on that word testament uh, because um, as scholars have kind of uh, overlooked that that word testament is a is a technical legal term in Greco-Roman uh, literature. Um, it, we have thousands of pages of, of Greco-Roman legal texts, and a lot of those pages have to do with these documents called testaments and how they were supposed to be validated and authorized. And so, uh, for my book, what I do is I examine the formation of the New Testament as a Greco-Roman testament, as a Greco-Roman legal document that needed to go through certain protocols and meet certain stipulations in order to be validated. And um, I pay special attention to the book of Revelation, um, which we'll get into why in, in a bit, I'm sure. Um, but one of the advantages of this is that that problem that I brought up 
uh, concerning the canonical criteria, that problem of how the canonical criteria are, are incomplete insofar as they, they don't really account for whether a document uh, is moral or, or whether it's contradictory um, or whether it's just silly. Uh, that l- the particulars involved with evaluating a testament in the Greco-Roman world did account for those things. In, in a Greco-Roman uh, context, in a Greco-Roman legal context, a lawyer or a jurist would uh, invalidate a, a potential testament if it was contradictory. They would invalidate it if it was not moral, if it commanded people to do immoral things. Um, they also expected a Greco-Roman testament to have great solemnity and profundity. It had to be serious and, and uh, be about serious matters. So if we go back to my example of a potential hypothetical document that, that meets the canonical criteria, um, we, we can see how if we add in these, these kind of testamentary ideas, uh, we can see why the early church would reject a text that had contradiction in it or, or was immoral. Um, we could see, we can also see why, you know, the early church would want the apostle Paul's tax receipts, because even if they are, if they are, uh, consistent and they are moral, um, they're not really profound. They're not solemn. They're just, you know, they're, they're just any old things. Um, so this kind of new methodology for examining the new Testament is what I deploy, uh, in the book. And, um, it turns out that revelation has, uh, much to say in that regard as well. Yeah, that's great, Tom. And that's a helpful place to start just understanding what a Testament is because, uh, we, you know, when we think about the expectations of a Greco-Roman Testament, we then come to uh, the book of Revelation, as you mentioned, uh, and you tell us that this book actually had had a significant role in the formation of the New Testament. Um, can you can you talk to us about how the book of Revelation functioned in this respect and why it's a special focus of your book? Yeah, so um, when we examine Greco-Roman legal texts and their stipulations for what a testament was to contain. Uh, we find, I, I already mentioned kind of the content, uh, the general content. So, you know, a, a testament needed to be moral, it had to be consistent, it couldn't have contradiction, and it needed to be solemn. Uh, but uh, there were other things as well that a testament needed to do. So, for instance, um, a, a testament in, in the Greco-Roman legal world uh, needed to appoint an heir. Um, testaments were usually legal documents people made, you know, that would go and come into force on their death where, you know, this is where we get our term for a will and testament. So a testament needed to appoint an heir. Um, it was expected that you would reward your slaves, even setting them free. There, there needed to be uh, an oath of the testator, usually towards the end. Um, you needed to have a statement vowing that nothing was changed in, in the testament, you know, affirming that no one had gone in and erased things or added things in that the testator didn't want. Um, the testator usually had a section where they would impart moral advice to to the readers, to the inheritors. And then uh, the testament also needed to be sealed with seven seals. And the reason why Revelation is so important for the New Testament is that Revelation allows the New Testament to fulfill these kind of testamentary stipulations. So, um, for example, uh, Revelation um, at the end uh, specifically says, this is Revelation 21, chapter 21, verse 7. Um, Revelation says that whoever fulfills the things written in this book, he uh, will be my son. Revelation thus uh, appoints an heir. Uh, Revelation 
uh, gives rewards for, for slaves, the followers of Jesus in chapter 11, verse 18. Um, there's an oath of the testator in Revelation as well at the very end, right where it should be. Uh, Revelation 22, 16, where Jesus gives this kind of final affirming oath. Revelation concludes with a statement that uh, no one should add or take away from the text. That's the last chapter, Revelation 22. And a revelation, of course, has a section where it imparts moral advice to the readers in the first three chapters. And then uh, perhaps most remarkably, there's a famous passage in Revelation chapter five. It's this throne room scene where the author, John, is, is given this kind of exalted vision of the heavenly throne room where God is sitting on a throne. And uh, as the text goes, um, he sees a slain lamb. That That's uh, a, an allegorical description of Jesus, a slain lamb Jesus, holding a scroll that's sealed with seven seals, just like a Greco-Roman Testament was supposed to be sealed with. And the lamb is described as slain, but also alive. And that's also curious because Greco-Roman Testaments uh, were, were only supposed to come into force legal force after the testator's death. And here we have in Revelation, this allegorical de depiction of Jesus, the slain lamb, having died, but then, um, it, it, uniquely in Jesus's case, coming back to life and opening up his own testament that's sealed with seven seals. And I show in my book how the early church interpreted that scroll as allegorically referring to the whole New Testament and Old Testament. Um, and thus, in a manner of speaking, Revelation seals the New Testament with seven seals, just like uh, Greek Roman, any Greek Roman Testament was supposed to do. So, uh, in other words, if we take Revelation out of the New Testament, then it no longer the New Testament no longer meets these Greco Roman testamentary stipulations. It no longer is really a valid Greco Roman Testament in the eyes of um, the Greco-Roman legal culture. So in that sense, Revelation is crucial, in some ways more crucial than any other text, for making the New Testament into what, what could be considered a, a valid uh, and legally binding testamentary document. And um, the, the second thing uh, is that uh, the reason why I follow uh, Revelation so closely in the book is that, um, ironically, uh, of all the New Testament books, uh, Revelation was the most controversial of any New Testament document. There were there were more churches that had issue with it than any other church than any other document, and um, there were churches that that actually omitted it from their New Testaments for over a thousand years. And this is something that has not been really appreciated by scholars. And it's something I, I wanted to really delve into in the book. Um, it's kind of the second the second uh, goal of my book, the first being to look at the New Testament like a Greco-Roman Testament, and the second to examine the reception of Revelation and why it was so troubled uh, in the medieval churches. Well, Tom, that's really helpful. And and so this is good. So we've 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 talked about some of the terminology that's going to be foundational to the book, um, and then and then you've helped us, you know, sort of see this this important um, uh, connection between the New Testament and and the Book of Revelation, and then there's this this other piece to the project too, um, and and that's the research on the commentaries and the Eastern commentators on Revelation. 
Um, and you know, this is a history that that frankly has never really been told. What what can you tell us there? Yeah. So, um, what I try to do in the book is is most of the texts I deal with are are various commentaries on the Book of Revelation, and. I chose to look at commentaries uh, for several reasons. One was just the practical reason that um, in certain Eastern traditions, uh, I, I, I say certain, pretty much all Eastern traditions, except for, for one or two, um, which I'll get to later on. But in, in basically all Eastern Christian traditions, the, the book of Revelation w- was viewed so suspiciously at times that um, when we when we look in these traditions, the only information we have about how Revelation was interpreted is by just a handful of Revelation commentators. Um, so that's kind of all we're left with. So practically, uh, I chose to look at them because it's it's really all that remains. Um, I also chose to look at them and how they view Revelation because um, it turns out that these commentators were enormously influential in redeeming revelation, in reintegrating revelation or, or integrating revelation for the first time into the New Testaments of their churches. So uh, not only are these commentators uh, some of the only evidence we have for how revelation was interpreted in these churches, they also happen to be uh, immensely pivotal figures for how revelation became accepted into the new testaments of these churches that's great well tom talk to us now if you can about the the commentators your book deals with the most you uh you help us see how commentators and especially here revelation commentators you say in the book participated in a synthesis of christian exegetical tradition and secular juristic convention uh but who 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 are you engaging with uh, in the book primarily? There's about a, a dozen, roughly a dozen commentators that that I, I canvass. So the the greatest number is from the Greek tradition, and I, I examine about uh, four or five commentators. Um, Oikumenius is the earliest; uh, he's writing in, in the 500s, um, and then uh, Andrew of Caesarea. Uh, Arathos of Caesarea, same place, but 300 years or so apart from from Andrew, and then Neophytus, and then some anonymous scholia, anonymous notes on Revelation. Um, so that's about f- uh, five or so commentators from the Greek tradition. I also look at uh, two Syriac commentators. That's all we have in Syriac tradition are these two commentators. One's anonymous. Um, the other's named Dionysius Barcelibi. He's a 12th century polymath. Uh, he's a fascinating figure. I also look at uh, a Coptic homily. Coptic is the native language of Egypt. Um, the Coptic church, of course, is in Egypt. Uh, they've got uh, only really one uh, work preserved on Revelation um, that lasts uh, to, to the present day, and it's this homily. It's relatively short. And then I also look at an Armenian commentary by a man named Nursus of Lambron. He's writing in the 12th century. Um, he was a, a major figure in Armenian history for, for getting Revelation integrated into their New Testament. And then um, I look at a Georgian figure, Euthemius. Uh, Georgia is a country in the Caucasus. And um, I also look at an anonymous Slavonic commentary and then um, a couple Arabic commentaries, uh, one by Bulis al-Bushi, uh, who's writing in the 13th century in Egypt in Arabic, and then another by Ibn Khattab Kaiser, 
Um, he's one of my favorite. Uh, he wrote an expansive commentary. He's very, very perceptive, very erudite. There's a couple Ethiopic commentaries that I don't really get into because they, they might be um, actually written, um, you know, post-1500, post-printing press. Uh, so, so I don't get into them too much. Um, aside from those, uh, there's a number of commentaries that, uh, while we don't have them extant, uh, we do have fragments and quotations of them. And some of these are very important for documenting the reception of, of revelation. So for example, Hippolytus of Rome, he has a commentary that's lost, but we, we've got a bunch of fragments. Um, and he wrote around the year 200. So very early, there's a fascinating commentary by a guy named Gaius of Rome. And um, again, we only have fragments of his, but um, his work is fascinating because uh, it's what we would call a hostile uh, commentary in that he doesn't like Revelation and he's trying to dethrone it. He's trying to explain why people shouldn't consider this part of the New Testament. Um, so he's doing something very different. The other commentators are trying to defend the text, but he's doing something very different. Um, and th there's a couple others uh, th that I look at as well. There's a few from Latin tradition as well by Jerome, St. Jerome, uh, Victorinus. And then I also look at Augustine. He doesn't have a commentary in particular, but he has a lot to say. And um, these commentaries are all, uh, you know, I go, I won't go into details here, but they're all, many of them are somewhat interrelated. They're usually responding to each other or responding to an original source. So there's some fascinating dynamics going on, even though they might be separated by centuries and languages, um, they're still interacting with similar materials and they, they have a lot of fascinating things to say about uh, their perception of revelation. Well, Tom, organizationally, I, I thought your book made sensible what what seems like rather complicated topics as you're graduating from these various testamentary standards that that a new testament commentator expected in a particular text now what can you tell us of, of the influence that the third century commentator origin had on your rationale for organizing the book now, Origen was immensely influential. Uh, Origen, um, he he wrote, uh, you know, approximately between 220 and 250 uh, CE, and he is known as uh, one of the most influential theologians ever, uh, one of the most influential biblical exegetes ever. Um, he he comments on Revelation. He does not, uh, as far as we know, have a a commentary on Revelation. And if he did, there, there's some hint he may have, but it was lost. Um, but he does leave a lot of incidental comments on the text throughout his many writings. Um, but he is immensely influential on the reception of Revelation and on the organization of my book because he, uh, he well, he, he did two things. One is that he really was the, the first uh, commentator, the first major commentator um, to, to synthesize uh, the New Testament um, as a, a legal document, but also a, a, a sacred text. Um, in other words, uh, he kind of begins borrowing from, from Greco-Roman uh, legal vocabulary to describe the New Testament as a testament, as a, and uh, I, I should say, he, perhaps more accurately, um, he may not be borrowing from these, these uh, Greco-Roman lawyers or jurists, um, but he's certainly using a shared vocabulary with them. So he's really treating the New Testament like a, a genuine Greco-Roman testament. Um, so that's one reason why he's important. A second reason is that uh, Origen, when he, the way he viewed the Old and New Testaments, the way he exegeted them was that he believed that um, all of Scripture, all of the Old and New Testaments, 
uh, can be analyzed in three different ways. And he labeled these as the body, the soul, and the spirit of scripture. And he believed that that every text had three parts to it, the body, which referred to kind of the, the superficial surface meaning, the historical meaning of a text, the, the soul, which referred to the moral or ethical teachings of a text, and then thirdly, the, the spirit or the, the aspect of the text that, that we would call the, the mystical, the, the sublime, the, the solemn and profound aspects of a text. And so when Origen was was exegeting, when he was writing his commentaries, he would uh, would um, not always, but typically, look for these three categories of interpretation in every text that that he treated, and he would take care to try and answer any objections um, that that pertained to some of these categories. So, if he was examining the body. Of scripture, that is like the historical aspect of it, or the the kind of surface meaning of it, he would take care to explain any contradictions that that he might note, and he would try to absolve those um, and show how these, though they may appear to be contradictions, aren't actually. And uh, then when he examined the second aspect of scripture, the the soul of scripture. Um, if there was anything that seemed to be immoral, he would he would try and explain uh, that to his audience to make it uh, to to help them understand why he why it should be properly viewed as a moral thing, and uh, likewise uh, with the spirit, he was always trying to to exhort his readers to ascend these three steps to come to this final pinnacle of scriptural interpretation to appreciate the deep mysticism or profundity of a text. Now this becomes influential in a number of ways. Um, one is that this three-tiered way of examining scripture maps on really well to the three different ways that Greco-Roman jurists evaluated testaments. So I mentioned that for a Greco-Roman jurist, that um, a, a testament needed to be consistent. It couldn't have contradiction. That's very like Origen's description of the body of scripture, that it's supposed to avoid contradiction. Uh, jurists thought that testaments should be moral, like Origen, who thought the soul of scripture should articulate morality. And jurists thought that a testament should be solemn. And this is very much like Origen's category of um, the, uh, the New Testament being profound and sublime. So that's how I organize my book. Um, I have my introduction, and then I devote one chapter to each of these three categories. And um, in each chapter, I map on the Greco-Roman legal categories of, of consistency um, in chapter one, or integrity in chapter two, or profundity in chapter three. And while doing that, I also talk about origins exegetical categories as well. And uh, fortunately, this isn't just a, a viewing revelation in this way, isn't just a creation that, that I came up with. Because if we read the uh, commentators that I discuss, they are quite taken with Origen's methodology of, of viewing scripture through these three lenses. In fact, um, Andrew of Caesarea, one of uh, perhaps the most famous and most influential revelation exegete, he divides his entire commentary um, into portions, sets of three to mirror this three-tiered aspect of scripture. And Andrew's commentary and his methodology was taken up in all sorts of traditions. We find his the way he divides revelation comes up in Syriac, it comes up in Slavonic, it comes up in Georgian, comes up in Armenian. And so 
Um, in a way, uh, by organizing my book um, in these three ways, I'm, I'm following in the path of origin. I'm also following in the path of Greco-Roman jurists when they evaluated testaments, but I'm also following in the path of, of uh, Eastern commentators. And um, a, a kind of fun fact is that, is that in not only this, I also follow in the path of many Revelation manuscripts. Um, if, if we go to the original Greek uh, manuscripts of Revelation, we find that about uh, 30 or 33% of them follow this kind of rubric that the scribe has either divided Revelation up uh, using these three lenses in, in a way, or um, the scribe has attached Andrew of Caesarea's commentary to the, the text of scripture um, so that even the, the very manuscripts of Revelation themselves follow this three-tiered path of exegesis. And so it's also the one that I follow in my book. Well, Tom, I, I also want to talk to you about this section you have on the standard of consistency in Greco-Roman testaments uh, in the New Testament, where you tell us there is this growing labor to harmonize the Christian scriptures. Um, but you also draw readers into this world where there are serious uh, criticisms of, of inconsistencies with regard to the Old and New Testaments. Can you talk to us some about some of those criticisms and how commentators sought to confront those challenges? Yeah, I begin the chapter by looking at uh, Greco-Roman jurists and how they dealt with consistent inconsistencies in Testaments. And, um, you know, I have some some quotations about uh, what might invalidate a testament. So for example, there, there's a Greco-Roman lawyer uh, who says that if, if there's a testament that, quote, stipulates the delivery of a thing, which either does not or cannot exist, such as an impossible creature, like a hippocentaur, then the contract will be voided. And uh, that, that's actually very relevant to Revelation because Revelation talks about a lot of fantastic creatures that some people say can't exist. And uh, we find these criticisms in in um, the commentaries where the, they, the commentators are aware of people who are criticizing Revelation for having all these monsters running around and these horses that are breathing fire with lion's heads and things like that. And people say that's impossible. So um, what I do in the chapter is I walk through many of the criticisms that Revelation received. And then I, I talk about how commentators tried to absolve Revelation of these criticisms and tried to defend Revelation. Now, some of these criticisms are, are uh, very kind of, um, I guess, blunt or superficial criticisms. So for example, uh, Revelation uh, describes uh, people, uh, you know, cloth that, that is dipped in blood, but then it becomes white instead of crimson and, or it, or it describes gold. Uh, the city, the heavenly city of Jerusalem is, you know, has gold, but this gold happens to be transparent. Um, or there's a lamb that's also called a lion. And, uh, these seem to be totally contradictory. You know, a lion can't be a lamb. Gold is not transparent. And I show that, uh, commentators, um, simply interpret those passages allegorically, and uh, I think rightly so. Re they point out that Revelation itself uh, asks the reader to interpret its, image, its images allegorically um, because, uh, as the commentators will explain, that Revelation is supposed to be this exalted vision of heaven and the end times. And there's things that the prophet John is observing that can't really be articulated uh, in our everyday language. And so he's trying to, to explain 
these these incredible images using uh, the the best earthly analogies that he can. Um, but uh, th- those were kind of the low hanging fruit for commentators. Those are, those are easy uh, contradictions to to do away with. Um, harder ones was uh, if you if any of the readers your read or listeners have ever sat down and read Revelation from beginning to end. Uh, they may have uh, experienced the same thing that, that most people experience, where you're, you're reading this text and then eventually you feel like you've lost the plot thread, that things that you think have already happened seem to be happening again, and there's people that you thought were dead that are alive again, and it's hard to understand what's going on. In other words, the narrative seems contradictory. And so that was a, a big critique of Revelation, that that it's very the very fabric of its story doesn't make sense. And commentators dealt with that in a variety of ways, but the main way they dealt with it was they explained that uh, this is because revelation is kind of a uh, cyclical, that it's not meant to be read as a, a linear story. Rather, it's kind of multiple versions of the same story that's repeated at various times throughout the text. Um, but there were several other uh stringent or uh, criticisms uh, lodged against Revelation um, due to its alleged contradictions. Uh, Gaius of Rome, whom I mentioned, was a, was kind of an, a hostile commentator. He was really big on this, and he would he would compare Revelation statements, um, like he would talk about all these, these signs and portents that were supposed to be harbaging uh, the end of time, and, and he would quote the words of Jesus, and, and he would say, hey, you know, Jesus is supposed to come back like a thief in the night. We're supposed to be surprised. There's not supposed to be any warning signs, just like a thief doesn't give warning signs. And um, commentators would respond to that in various ways. Usually they would say that, you know, Revelation is talking about the final judgment, not the return of Christ and, and things like that. Um, I, on this chapter, I focus on two passages in particular that were seen as being sort of irrefutably contradictory by, by many and um, w- one of these passages might be surprising to us. Uh, one of the delights of doing this research is that there are there are criticisms that people have of Revelation that uh, we hear today, but then there's other criticisms that we usually don't hear today at all. And, and some people might scratch their heads wondering why someone has a problem with it. Um, so for instance, uh, fairly broadly, it's almost universal that commentators were very sensitive to Revelation chapter four, uh, verse one, where, uh, wherein is described uh, an opened door in heaven. And uh, John is then kind of given access to the heavenly realms through this door. And uh, people in the medieval world were, were very upset by that. Um, they, they felt like this was giving an earthly description to heaven. They thought that the idea that there was a door being opened from time to time in heaven was absurd. That's such an earthly thing. That's like a regular old physical house. That's not something that would be in heaven. Um, So the commentators take a a lot of time explaining that this is a symbol uh, that's designating how John is is given access to to heavenly things. Um, Another passage that was difficult for commentators was, uh, I think it's in Revelation chapter nine, where Revelation talks about this uh, kind of chimerical army of 200 million men that have breastplates of fire and um, are doing all sorts of horrible things. And people really struggled with that. Um, They thought, you know, how can there possibly be an army of 200 million? Um, 
I think I, if, if you don't mind, I'll read a quote from Ibn Khattab Kaiser, one of our Arabic commentators, um, regarding this passage. He says, I have considered the words of this verse as well as their meanings, purposes, and contexts. I, however, did not find what argument might be applied to it so that its interpretation might be meaningful, but instead I have found it only to be bizarre. If the correct interpretation has been hidden from me due to my feebleness and discernment or my shortcomings and aptitude, then my apology is extended with diligence. So in other words, poor Ibn Khattab Kaiser uh, apologizes to his audience because he can't figure out what's going on here. Um, he finally settles on the idea that these must not really be human soldiers. Uh, he, he thinks that they're, they're kind of evil angels um, that, that's being described. So, uh, but, but to sum up, um, commentators went to great efforts to show that revelation was consistent with itself. It didn't contradict itself with its narrative coherency, and that it also was consistent with other passages in the Old and New Testament, like when Jesus says that, you know, he's going to come back like a thief in the night. Um, they, they went to great lengths to explain how revelation is not contradicting that. Uh, rather, um, revelation is, is talking about the, the final judgment or, and so forth. That's helpful, Tom. Well, you you take us further into the standard of integrity, which stipulated that a testament text would not it would not be immoral or or heretical, as you've talked about some. Um, if these issues were of more serious concern, it would seem more critical for commentators to come up with you know more strategies to to justify their inclusion or reading of a text that was being criticized. Can you talk to us about what some of those strategies were? Okay. Yeah, so in chapter two, uh, I talk about the integrity of Revelation, and I focus on criticisms that we would call moral criticisms. So, um, uh, you know, even if a document was consistent, it doesn't mean that it has proper morality. And so uh, th this was um, a criticism that was lodged at Revelation frequently in the medieval world, where uh, the text was believed to be just, just simply immoral. And um, the, the way that commentators handled this was um, they would they would uh, do something that I call literal exegesis, where they, they would they would try to show that uh, a word or phrase in Revelation that that is is being interpreted uh, in one way really should be interpreted in a in a different way. Um, but that that different way was not, it was not an allegorical way. It was just a, a different way of understanding everyday speech or, or what a word happens to refer to. Um, a second strategy that they used was, was allegory, that, that uh, they would say that, that something is allegorical. That is, uh, that, that what it refers to is not uh, what that word or phrase or idea normally refers to. Um, it's in fact referring to something else entirely. Uh, so for instance, um, uh, we saw this in, in our discussion of consistency where uh, a lamb was called a lion in Revelation and um, there's really no way we can make a lamb uh, in our everyday parlance to mean lion. Uh, but allegorically, uh, the Jesus um, is called a lamb because he he's like a lamb and that he was sacrificed. And he's also called a lion in the sense that he's powerful and um, he, he can conquer his enemies uh, much like a lion can. So um, those were kind of the two go-to strategies that, that commentators will use. However, when it came to defending the morality of, of Revelation, um, they, they do employ uh, sometimes one or two other strategies as well. And um, this is because 
some of the critiques of Revelation's morality were that uh, people were upset because Revelation was was deeply critical of the Roman Empire. And in the early church, when Rome was pagan and Rome was persecuting Christians, um, Christians took a lot of comfort in Revelation's critique of Rome. But then uh, when Constantine came to power in the early 300s, and then slowly when the empire Christianized and became viewed as a Christian empire, uh, these Christians were left with a text that is still criticizing Rome. And that makes them uncomfortable. They're supposed to be this saintly, you know, divinely inspired kingdom. And here their sacred text is critical of them. And so uh, what, uh, and, th- and that was viewed as, as morally problematic because the empire was viewed as a good thing. And so what, uh, what commentators tried to do is they tried to explain, well, you know, this is criticizing old pagan Rome of the past, but some of them um, decided to just kind of admit it uh, and say that, yeah, uh, that uh, ro- the text is criticizing Rome, but uh, that's not a moral problem. That's just, um, we're, it's just critiquing some beloved cultural icon. That's not an immoral thing to do. Um, and it's fine for, for Revelation to do that. Uh, the same thing came up with uh, Revelation style. If you read Revelation in the original Greek, um, you'll quickly realize that it's written by someone who's first language was was not Greek. Uh, you can tell that they have a Semitic background, they make mistakes, their grammar is bad. And in the, the Greco-Roman world, uh, good grammar and good style was almost like a moral quality where, uh, you know, we're talking about a culture that exalted rhetoric and orators. And so to have a sacred text that was filled with grammatical mistakes was offensive to people. And uh, with this, um, commentators can't really get around this. I mean, it's obvious that, that Revelation makes these mistakes. So what they do is is they um, will argue that that style and good grammar is not a moral category, that, that that's not something that, that should be censured uh, in Revelation. That In fact, Revelation is writing in this sort of low-class style precisely because God is concerned for the poor and the uneducated um, and that this is something we should appreciate. In Revelation, uh, so the the kind of um, other tactic uh, that 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 commentators will use when it comes to the integrity of of Revelation, um, especially regarding its criticism of Rome, is that there is uh, one or two instances where um, Revelation is criticizing the city of Rome, and it's it's allegorically calling Rome uh, Babylon. And uh, Babylon, uh, as your listeners may know, was this terrible figure in the Bible that is symbolic of oppressing the people of God. And so Revelation will call Rome Babylon, and and Revelation indicates that this is an allegorical statement because it calls it a mystery, the mystery of Babylon, which kind of flags this as allegory. And there are there is a commentator that is kind of so upset by any criticism of Rome that. Um, they they take a text that uh, is supposed to be interpreted allegorically, but they instead interpret it literally. And um, the commentator says, actually, the text is really referring to Babylon here, not Rome. Um, and this is this is kind of ironic in the history of exegesis because um, usually that's not how it works. Usually people take literal passages and and interpret them allegorically, but here we have the the opposite: an allegorical passage being interpreted literally. 
Um, as far as passages, other passages that were particularly uh, sensitive to, to moral criticism, um, there's passages, you know, involving the torture of people that, that, that commentators were sensitive to. There's the problem of evil. Why does God allow the devil to rampage around the earth? Why is God allowing the devil to tempt people? Um, the issues of theodicy and things like that were big issues. Uh, why do martyrs, you know, the martyrs under the altar in Revelation, they're calling for God to have vengeance and strike down their enemies. And um, this concerns several commentators, at least one of them, Ibn Khattab Kaiser. Um, he's wondering why, why are they saying this? Shouldn't, shouldn't they be asking God to forgive uh, their enemies, just like we're commanded to in the Gospels? So he spent some time dealing with that criticism, um, as do others as well. Um, this is one of the chapters where where many of the issues uh, resonate often with contemporary culture. People often will have similar questions about, about revelation and violence and things like that. And it turns out that it's folks in the medieval world uh, had similar concerns. Well, Tom, I want to ask about this third section uh, on, the, on the issue of profundity. Um, tell us, if you can, what effect the profundity of revelation would have on the ancient understanding of, of the New Testament as a Greco-Roman Testament? And how would early commentators seek to deal with the irony of the text needing to be clearly written to be a testament with also this relative obscurity or mystery that a divinely inspired text may be expected to have? Yeah, in the uh, Greco-Roman legal culture, uh, testaments were supposed to be very solemn. And that, that was a, an important aspect of, of how testaments were supposed to be written. And the New Testament kind of takes this into even more profound territory because the New Testament, of course, in Christian tradition is not uh, just just written by anybody. It's supposed to be inspired by God. And so how much more should this testament be solemn and profound compared to regular earthly testaments? So what I do in this chapter is I, I show how Revelation... Um, was viewed as as deeply profound uh, regarding several different categories. Uh, so, for example, um, a testament is supposed to be consistent with reality, and I show that uh, not only in this chapter did commentators believe that Revelation was consistent with reality, it also unveils an entirely new heavenly reality um, that is then explained to humans. Um, I show in this chapter also how According to commentators, Revelation was not not only moral, but actually exhorts people to morality and teaches people how to be moral and encourages them. I also talk about how uh, the commentators believed that Revelation uh, was not just simply divinely inspired, but that John, you know, reached the highest level of inspiration, the highest level of consciousness possible. Um, for a prophet. And I, I also show how Revelation was believed by commentators to seal the New Testament. It's kind of the finishing seal of the Old and New Testaments. And that uh, more than that, commentators believed that the very contents of the Old and New Testaments could be found within Revelation. So you'll see commentators going to various passages in Revelation to justify why we have four Gospels in the New Testament or why uh, there are a certain number of books in the Old Testament and so forth. And Revelation was believed by them to do 
all of these things, and therefore it was believed to be uh, an immensely profound document that, that, that was certainly so profound it could really only be divinely inspired. Now, you mentioned um, that kind of irony of how uh, a document um, that is so obscure could be so so profound. And um, I, I, I discuss this uh, at length because commentators discuss it at length as well. Um, when you read early and medieval Christian statements about scripture, they believed that scripture was supposed to be clear. It was supposed to be easy to understand. But when you kind of push that uh, a little bit, you'll find that those same uh, authors that are saying this will also acknowledge that there are aspects of scripture that are, are actually very obscure and very difficult to understand. And obscurity was generally thought of as a negative thing. And so commentators with Revelation have this tension because of any book in the Bible, Revelation is usually thought of as the most obscure, the most difficult to understand. And so commentators are, are kind of faced with having to not only explain the text to the audience, to their audience, but explain why it's hard to explain, why it's hard to understand. And um, what they do is they argue that obscurity um, is a problem if someone is attempting to be clear, but fails. So they're, they're a bad writer and they're trying to be clear, but they, they fail at it. That's when obscurity is bad. But obscurity could be a good thing if what's going on is you have this cosmic mystical content that is far above our earthly minds and sensibilities. Then that content is expected to be obscure. And it's not because it's inherently obscure. It's simply because we in our earthly mortal frail selves can't comprehend it. And so in other words, the problem is really us. Uh, it's not, it's not the text itself. And in kind of making this, this maneuver, uh, commentators then are able to praise revelation because it is so obscure. Um, so for example, St. Jerome, he says, the apocalypse of John has as many mysteries as words. In saying this, I have said less than the book deserves. All praise of it is inadequate. Manifold meanings lie hidden in its every word. So for commentators, they, they viewed their job was to reveal these hidden mysteries and these realities that are embedded in Revelation. And that by doing that, people would then see the profundity that they once were blinded to, but now can finally behold for themselves. So Tom, you've, you've in fact given us more after this final section. Um, and what remains in the book is this comprehensive reception history of Revelation in your appendix up into the medieval period. Uh, and then also you make some helpful suggestions in your conclusion. Um, and maybe it would be a difficult task as we're wrapping up, but broadly speaking, could you give us an overview of how and why you argue that Revelation fell out of favor among Eastern Christians for, as you say, over a thousand years? I'd be, I'd be glad to. In my appendix, I, I try to give a fairly comprehensive survey of the reception of Revelation from the very beginning, from the early second century all the way up to about 1500 
CE. And uh, I go in chronological and also geographical order. And uh, my, my findings, I think, can broadly be summarized as in the first couple hundred years, so up to about the year 300, Revelation was, I think I can fairly say, universally accepted and revered by the early church. It's quoted all over the place by all sorts of authors, uh, by Latin authors, by Greek authors, by authors that are in uh, Western Europe, Eastern Europe, that are writing in Northwest Africa and Egypt and in the Middle East. And really the only true example of someone who was kind of miffed by by revelation was the example of Gaius of Rome in the year 200 uh, but he's a fairly minor figure and he um, also rejected anything that was attributed to John so he also rejected the gospel of John for example so his his take on revelation was fairly unique and and, and nobody Nobody uh, seems to have agreed with him. Um, there was one other figure, uh, Dionysius of Alexandria in, in 260. Uh, he uh, leaves some fascinating comments um, on, on Revelation that are preserved by a church historian named Eusebius of Caesarea, who wrote in the 4th century. And according to Eusebius, Dionysius was skeptical of Revelation uh, for some of the reasons that, that I've gone over, but he did not reject it. Um, he, he was a little suspicious of it, but he did not reject it. Um, he actually still revered it as an inspired text. But what happens is that starting in the 300s, Revelation's prestige plummets, uh, especially in the East. So in the Greek church, it, it starts uh, suffering many criticisms. And we start seeing it being omitted from lists of New Testament documents. It starts being omitted from uh, New Testament manuscripts uh, that, that are being made. Um, it also, uh, s people stop quoting from it. They're, in the early church, people quoted from it all the time. But starting in the 300s and the 400s, and it just gains steam as time goes on, uh, people in the Greek church start quoting it less and less and less uh, to the point where, you know, even in the 800s, you'll have Greek authors that, that will talk about how disputed the text is. Um, for instance, um, Oikumenius in the 500s, he says that the majority of people reject Revelation. And um, we have several other testimonies to that effect as well. And we can track this by looking at the number of Revelation manuscripts that remain in Greek. You can see that's a big dip in over three or 400 years in the medieval time frame, when it just wasn't being copied and it was being omitted from, from New Testament manuscripts. Now, uh, interestingly, in the Western church, in the Latin church, uh, this was not happening. Uh, Revelation, um, in the early church, in the Latin church, was accepted, and it continued to be accepted uh, straight on through. There was never a point in the Latin church where Revelation was viewed skeptically. Um, so I, I, in the appendix, I talk about the Latin reception and the Greek reception. I also talk a lot about the reception of Revelation in other Christian traditions. So I look at Egypt, I look at the Coptic reception, and uh, it turns out that, that Revelation does go through a bit of a, a trouble spell there, um, perhaps in the 300s or 400s. It's not too serious, but uh, it makes a big comeback. Um, it never seems to have been rejected or anything. Um, it just seems to have been ignored every once in a while. It's not quoted as much, but it makes a roaring comeback and uh, stays in the, in the Coptic New Testament um, 
permanently, pretty much. However, the other Eastern churches, the story is very different. Um, Revelation, for instance, never seems to have been translated into Syriac when the New Testament uh, was first translated into Syriac. In fact, the first translation of Revelation into Syriac doesn't happen until the 500s, um, but then people kind of ignore it. They don't use it. It happens again in the 600s. It's translated once more in the 600s, and uh, people are a little more interested in it, but they, they pretty, pretty much ignore it quickly again. And uh, in fact, uh, even in, into the 1200s and even in, in 1300, we find Syriac authors, and, and these aren't just random authors, these are church leaders, sometimes the leaders of the churches that uh, still reject Revelation. And it's really not until the printing press that Revelation becomes fully integrated into Syriac uh, New Testaments. Um, similar stories happen in the Armenian church. The Armenian church also, when they, when they had the New Testament translated into Armenian, do not seem to have translated Revelation. We're not certain about that, but it seems likely. And uh, then um, they omitted Revelation for hundreds of years, and it really wasn't until Nurses of Lambron in the 12th century wrote his commentary and argued that Revelation should be part of, of the Armenian New Testament, and he seems to have been very successful in that regard. Uh, similar thing happened in the Slavonic churches. Their um, Revelation does seem to have been originally translated in the famous Slavonic uh, translation done by um, the famous uh, Slavic missionaries whose names I, I believe were Cyril and Methodius, but that translation was lost. And so there were hundreds of years where uh, Revelation is not in any Slavonic New Testament manuscripts. And until a commentator came along, we don't know his name, but he wrote a commentary. This is probably, you know, uh, 10th, 11th century, something like that. And uh, he was successful. Um, and we do start seeing Revelation uh, re-enter or enter into for the first time, depending on your interpretation, the Slavonic New Testament. There's a similar story in in the Georgian churches, uh, their um, revelation was never translated into Georgian, uh, along with other New Testament documents, for hundreds of years until Euthemius, Euthemius the Athenite, uh, he translated it in a commentary in the 900s. But uh, while this certainly helped revelation, uh, Georgian churches still omitted it from their New Testaments, and they omitted it uh, much like the Syriac church up until the printing press. Um, so uh, in the Arabic churches, um, the Arabic church, of course, uh, covers you know Egypt, a lot of these geographic areas. You'll find Arabic writers in the later medieval age, um, and, but we do find that, that in Arabic Christian speaking in Christian Arabic speaking centers that that revelation is beloved, especially especially in Egypt. So, in other words, to sum up a revelation's reception, it seems to have all been universally accepted pretty much in the early church, uh, starting even in the early one hundreds, and then it continued that this reception continued uh, pretty much unabated in the Latin church. And pretty much unabated in the Egyptian church. Maybe there was a brief, brief period, but that, that's debatable. Um, but then in the Greek church, it kind of fell out of favor in the 300s, and it took a long time, you know, five, 600 years, 700 years to come back. And then in the Syriac 
and Georgian churches, it, it never really, it took even longer, you know, like a thousand years. And uh, in the Slavonic and Armenian churches, it, it also took several hundred years. So this is a fascinating dynamic that that scholars have not appreciated. And I'm hoping to, to bring this to light. When people view this, though, they, they usually do have some questions about uh, all of this. And so in my conclusion, I try to answer some of these questions. So maybe I can give you a little preview of that um, as we end our time together. Uh, so, so one question people often have is uh, just, just, you know, why, why did Revelation maintain its standing in the West, but not the East? And um, this is not an easy question to answer. Um, but, but one reason certainly seems to be that for whatever reason, um, starting in the 300s, when the Greek church kind of started criticizing Revelation, the church leaders of the West, the Latin church, did the opposite. They loved Revelation. And I'm talking about leaders like Jerome, Augustine, uh, Cassiodorus, uh, Pope Gregory. These folks loved Revelation, and I, and that certainly must have helped its standing. You know, these luminaries and these gatekeepers of Latin Christian tradition, loving the text so much must have must have really helped. Uh, but in, in the Greek church, uh, that wasn't the case. Um, it, it could also be that we find a pattern that when Christians are being persecuted and oppressed, they tend to love revelation, that revelation they find to be very consoling and comforting. But when Christians are in power and prestigious, they tend to not like revelation as much. And in the West, this is relevant because right when revelation starts to fall out of power in the East is right when when Christians are gaining political power in the East, but the opposite is happening in the West where the West, the Western empire is falling to the Germanic tribes. There's chaos everywhere. The Christians are feeling like they're being persecuted by the Germans and the Aryans. And so you do maybe that, maybe that dynamic could explain some of the, the different attitudes perhaps. Um, but, but the reality is we've, I've got to be a little speculative there. Nobody ever comes out. There's no source that comes out and explains this. And, Another question people might have is, is why did Revelation begin to regain its standing in the East? What happened? What, what was the turnaround? And um, as I explain in my book, one of the one of the turnarounds were these commentary these commentaries that were written that that certain commentators really took it upon themselves to redeem this text, and and they would argue that you know the early church accepted this and they would try to make the text understandable to their audience, and they by and large seem to have been immensely successful. Um, they may have been aided by the fact that, you know, certain criticisms of Revelation um, may not have worn on very well. So uh, when, for instance, Revelation is criticizing Rome, um, if you're a fourth or fifth century Roman Christian, you might be very offended by that. But by the time you get into the Byzantine era, when when it was common for Christians to think of the the Roman Church as becoming corrupt, uh, you know, you you might not have a problem with that anymore. Or, you know, Byzantine Greek speakers may not have really noticed the the bad Greek as much as uh, fourth century Greek speakers. Um, so the the passing of time might might have helped might have helped. Uh, redeemed revelation as well. Um, in, as far as other Eastern churches go, uh, I think that one of the reasons that revelation took so long to, to, 
get back or, or to enter the New Testaments of the Syriac and Armenian and Georgian churches is simply that right when Revelation was falling out of favor amongst Greek churches in the 300s, that's precisely the time when the major New Testament translations into Armenian and into Georgian and into Syriac were happening. And so when these translators were looking at the Greek New Testament and deciding, you know, what are we going to translate? This text was already viewed suspiciously by the Greek churches, meaning that these translators passed it over. And of course, uh, once that happened, it was going to take an immense effort to, to get revelation into the New Testament because you start developing this culture and this New Testament that omits revelation and people don't, you know, they don't want to add something to the New Testament. I mean, try and show up at a church today and add a new book to the New Testament. It's going to be tough. So um, that, that could be one of the historical kind of realities that, that made it so difficult for revelation to enter into the New Testaments of these churches. And, but like I said, it eventually did. Eventually, uh, we find it in the New Testaments of, of all of these Eastern churches. Tom, that's really helpful. And uh, it's really fine research that you've done. I've mentioned to you how I feel like I've learned just a ton from your work. So I'm grateful for that. And, you know, you've been generous with your time here with us now. Uh, but before we wrap up, um, maybe you can share with our listeners what writing projects you plan to work on next. Thank you. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm always so scattered. I have so many interests. So sometimes I feel like I've got a lot of pots boiling on the back burner and I'm worried they're going to bubble over at some point. But so right now I'm, I'm, I have a bunch of stuff going on. I love translating. So um, I'm doing some, some translations. I've got a Syriac commentary on Daniel that I'm working on right now that'll be coming out on spring 2022. Um, I've got uh, a translation of some Greek scolia and revelation um, that's coming out around the same time. Um, I'm also, uh, my major project is this book that I'm writing on the historical Jesus and about uh, Josephus's testimony about, about Jesus. Josephus was this ancient Jewish historian who leaves us a paragraph about Jesus. And um, it's a very controversial paragraph. Scholars are skeptical about it, but I think I've uncovered some, some interesting um unnoted things about this paragraph. So I'm writing a book on that, um, and that will be published with Oxford University Press, uh, hopefully in a few years, hopefully 2024, 2025, something like that. Very good, Tom. And I'll, I'll be sure to look out for uh, some of that work. Uh, but for now, thank you for writing this book. It's called The Book of Revelation and its Eastern Commentators. It's out now with Cambridge University Press. Uh, and Tom, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Zach. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. <laughs>